Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why are monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. Hello, Chris. Hello, how are you? I'm very, very well indeed. What's happening with the world of science? Amazing story came out this week in the journal PNAS. That's the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences USA. Uh, It's a researcher called Rita Colwell. Um, She's based at the University of Maryland. And she has found that there's every reason to suspect that we might be able to see cholera from space. Amazing to think that, isn't it? That something you normally need a microscope to focus on, you can actually pinpoint with the aid of a satellite. Now, it's not that people are seeing the actual bacterium. What they're seeing are various indicators that the bacterium is going to cause a problem. Now, let's back up a little bit and tell people what cholera is. Cholera is a nasty bacterial infection which you acquire through drinking contaminated water. Mm -hmm. And people used to think it was just down to -to human-to-human spread. And in fact, that was pretty much the wisdom that was around in the 1850s when it was killing thousands of people in the UK. And a certain Sir John Snow, who was a physician in London, noticed that all of the patients that were getting ill all seemed to be getting water from one particular water pump in one part of London. So he had the handle of that water pump removed and the number of cholera cholera cases disappeared overnight. Now, what this shows is that, of course, people can acquire cholera from water. But how does it get there in the first place? Well, what science has taught us since is that cholera is naturally carried by a species of marine organism. These are called copepods. They're little plankton organisms, and the cholera lives on them and in them quite harmlessly. But when they come into contact with the kind of food and water that humans need, that's when the infection can transfer into humans. So how do scientists think they can use satellites to help? Well, the answer is that satellites can monitor several things. They can monitor sea temperature, They can monitor salinity, and they can also monitor chlorophyll, the green colour that you see in various plants. And the connection is this, that these tiny marine organisms eat algae, the green stuff in the sea. So when you get a big bloom of algae, which happens when the sea temperature is high, then after the bloom happens, after a few weeks after that, you get a big surge in the population of these cholera-carrying organisms. And they can then transmit that infection to humans. So this says if you watch what the sea temperature is doing, if you watch what the green coloration of the sea is doing, you can get some kind of warning several weeks ahead of where cholera might crop up. And what Rita Colwell and her team have done is to look at all this data, put it all together, and look at cholera cases on the ground in uh, one, one instance in Bangladesh and another instance in India. And they've found that this can predict and preempt where cholera is going to strike. And why that's important is that you can then go in with this kind of warning and warn people on the ground, don't drink this water, here are some replacement drinking supplies of water, here are some drugs if you do get get affected, and here are some other medical supplies that will keep people healthy. And as a result, you can break the back of the outbreak and you can prevent it becoming an an explosive dose of cholera. You can confine and constrain it and this will save lives because cholera currently kills tens of thousands of people every year. Mm. Mm. I mean, at one time we thought that cholera was, you know, sort of out of here, really, didn't we? You know, it was, it's like supposed to be extinct, but it's it's very much still there. No, well, the, the very reason that we can't get rid of it is because it's naturally carried by 
an almost ubiquitous organism in the sea. And this means unless you wipe out the thing that carries cholera, these tiny marine organisms, you're never going to get rid of it. And so for that reason, we can't just vaccinate people. We can't just eliminate the organism from Earth. It won't work like that. So instead, we have to have a better strategy. And that strategy is preemptive fighting the fire. So you look where there's going to be a problem and then put your resources there ahead of the arrival of the problem. And this minimises the scale of the outbreak. Mm, scary stuff. Let's get to our first question tonight. Now, Andrew in Cambridge has called in, Chris, and he would like to know, how does a DAB digital radio actually work? OK, well, in the old days of radio, even in the days of FM, what's actually happening is that um, when you're making a radio programme, sound waves from your mouth or even the vibrations from a needle um, of a, on a record player are turned into electrical signals which are effectively a, an electrical rendition of those waves they would then go into an amplifier which would then blast them out as radio waves and those radio waves would travel through the ether as what's called an electromagnetic wave they would then hit uh, an aerial or an antenna and because they're an electromagnetic wave when they met something made of metal which is what an antenna is they would induce another current to flow in that antenna and that current would then flow down the antenna it would flow into another amplifier and then come out of the speaker in the device so at no time did the signal ever really differ that much from the original sound waves that were being put into the microphone in the first place the problem with that is that the signal can degrade so you can have interference um, you can have other problems with it, and it also means it occupies a very large amount of the radio spectrum. It would be better if you could pack all the data into a tight area of the radio spectrum and make sure that everyone gets very high-quality signal, rather than the further you live from the transmitter, the weaker the signal you get and the worse the quality of audio you might get. So that's where digital radio comes along. And with digital, what you do is you take the sound that is being put into, say, a microphone from a person's voice, and it goes into what's called an encoder. And this encoder basically measures the height of the waves, the peaks and troughs of the sound waves, now electrical waves, going down the piece of wire, and it makes a note of them and converts them into binary. So that's digital, so a series of noughts and ones. Those noughts and ones are then transmitted as noughts and ones, and a digital radio picks up that stream of noughts and ones, and it then does the reverse calculation to, first of all, decode what the noughts and ones mean to get that list of the sizes of the waves again, and then it turns those lists of sizes of the waves back into real waves with a speaker. And the downside of this is that it takes time and energy to do all that processing, because to do all those calculations takes time and energy. The upside is that if a signal arrives at the radio, then it's very, very high quality because if it's decodable, then it will be perfect. And so people get much better quality of radio and you can also pack more data into a narrower spectrum on the radio. And with lots of pressure on radio spectrums these days, people are trying to get as much onto the radio spectrum as they can without interfering with other people. And this is a very efficient way of doing that. So that's basically how digital radio works in a nutshell. Jane has asked you, Chris, she was wondering, when they built the college buildings on the river in Cambridge, what did they do with the water whilst the building was in progress? I'm not a historian, and some of those buildings go back hundreds of years. 
But I will speculate, which is that um, it's possible to create temporary sort of barrages to divert water around things while you do stuff. And also, um, it's interesting that the cam is not the height that you see it today all the time. It's actually artificially high because of lock gates and things. And when they've had to unfortunately search the river for missing people and missing items, um, the, the river has been drained. And by opening the lock gates further downstream, then you can allow the water to flow away and the level drops significantly, down to a trickle actually. Um, and so the, the level of the river that we see today is artificially higher and that's because they wanted to make the river have more depth so that it would be better for people to move cargoes and things because then boats which were more heavily loaded could come along the river. If it wasn't controlled by lock gates and things it would be a lot shallower. So I think several things were used. One was that uh, it was possible to move the water across the riverbed slightly to build the colleges where they wanted to put them and second that the actual depth of the river was artificially adjusted um, by having water flow controls and, and things like lock gates. So there's two aspects to it, I think, there. Hmm. All right, well, right now it's time to go to the phones. Um, here's Tony. Good evening, Tony. Good evening, Sue. Lovely to talk to you again. <laughs> it's good to talk to you as well. Thank you. <laughs> uh, what's your question for Dr Chris? Right. It goes around brainwashing, really. You know, how much of it is pumped into us? Especially when we're very young. Now, they say if you get somebody young enough, you can make them believe it for life. That's the, well, the main part of the question. I mean, is it in the same part of the brain as hypnotism works on? I just wondered if you had any ideas on it, Dr. Chris. Mm, brainwashing, Brainwashing Chris. definitely exists, Tony. Um, and if you ask people who work on this kind of thing, they will tell you that you can definitely demonstrate evidence for brainwashing. In fact, I interviewed a couple of ladies from Oxford University about this a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. They've written a book about it. Um, the, the answer is that it comes down to the fact that it's in human nature to want to learn and to acquire new information. And the brain is very good at doing that. And the way the brain does that is by making connections from one brain cell to another brain cell as you reinforce that pathway, in other words, by repeating the connections or repeating the stimulus that makes these cells connect together, then the connections become stronger and stronger. And that's why, for instance, if you learn something, the first time you try and remember it, you remember bits of it, but it's a bit tricky. The second time you learn it and recall it, it's much easier. When you get to the point where you've been doing something your whole life, certain things are very easy to remember, like your own phone number, for example, unless you own a mobile phone, which most people don't seem to be able to remember. But um, the interesting thing here is that it's basically down to rehearsal. So with things like brainwashing, what you're doing is subjecting people to repetitive indoctrination. You're telling people why they have to believe something, giving them very good reason to believe it, and then not giving them any other option other than to believe it. And Mm. by putting people in the right psychological situation where they're vulnerable and they're, they're... open to suggestion and they're also uh, at a certain age where they might be more vulnerable by using a combination of these tactics you can make people believe virtually anything you want to and and unfortunately that then becomes quite hard for them to forget and this has been shown many many times with people who become extremists for various reasons i mean it seems to be that whole nations can i mean look at the japanese believe that hirohito was a god well, uh, the thing is that culture is very much a part of this, yeah. and you will get people whose whose culture it is to believe certain things, and people who want to make people have more extreme beliefs, for instance, may exploit certain aspects of someone's culture, psyche, and natural beliefs, in other words, the beliefs that were instilled in them by their family, to exploit that belief and to turn it round and, and use it as a tool to encourage people to believe other things or to want to act on those beliefs. Well, I mean, I believe... 
things when I was young. I suppose because I was brainwashed. So I certainly don't believe now. But, I mean, it's taken 80 years to get rid of it. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Chris. Uh, Keith has asked, in principle, if you had a static makeup of a scamjet on the ground filled with hydrogen and sucking oxygen to produce a combustion effect and in turn channel this into a heat exchanger to produce steam, with this steam, would you be able to heat a small town or produce hot water for this town? Interesting question. Chris. Yeah, I guess what Keith's getting at is if you burn hydrogen with uh, an equivalent amount of oxygen, because the equation is H2 plus O2 goes to 2H2O, two molecules of water, then you're going to get a lot of energy. Because if you if you do that reaction, it's a very clean reaction because the product is water, therefore there's no nasty contamination and, and uh, fumes, for example. It's just water, it's steam, and it also does release a large amount of energy. Why you'd need to go to all those extraordinary lengths to do it, I'm not entirely sure. Um, what we know is that you can burn hydrogen very very safely with oxygen and you get water and it does release a lot of heat and you can do several things with that with all that heat you could generate electricity because you could you could make some steam but why bother because the hydrogen is already there which you can you can use the heat to heat houses and that's a very effective way of doing that for instance you could send the heat as, as warm water and this is a principle called combined heat and power there was a, a number of strategies doing this in the Soviet Union and some other um, tests that were done on a smaller scale in the UK and the idea was you build a power station and instead of wasting heat putting water up um, cooling towers, steam up cooling towers, you could send the turbine waste heat through a system of pipes to heat people's houses and this gets more energy out of the fuel than you would otherwise extract from the fuel. Um, It does sound like a little bit of an intricate approach to getting heat for houses um, but I don't see why in principle you you couldn't do that but I think it would be probably a, a a bit over the top. All right, thank you very much. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Our next question comes from Claire in Gillingham. She's called in saying, Dr. Chris, please could you explain autism to me in easy to understand layman terms, please? Sure. Well, well, autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder. And that means that it's definitely something to do with the way the brain is wired up. It's something which is to do with the way the brain develops and puts itself together But beyond that, it's very difficult for us to explain exactly what's going on, except that we know how people with autism tend to behave. It tends to have an excess number of of boys over girls who are affected, and autism is part of a a spectrum of disorders called autism spectrum disorders, and and one of those is also known as Asperger's syndrome. Um, Why we get more boys than girls we don't know, but one of the features of autism and Asperger's is that people have an unusually focused interest in certain things, and especially things like mechanical things and mathematics, so how things tend to work. No one actually knows exactly why this happens, and there are some differences in the brain. If you look at brain scans of individuals who are autistic, then you can see that there are structural changes in the brain, and there are also some genes which are coming to light now which seem to be linked to the condition, and this fits with our observations that autism tends to run in families. 
Um, the bottom line is that people who have autism uh, often are very, very intelligent, but they may have a problem relating to other people. And so they tend to withdraw socially, and so they need to be carefully nurtured to make sure that they don't um, get excluded. And at the same time, um, they need to be carefully educated because some of them are, as I say, very, very intelligent. These people with Asperger's syndrome can sometimes show what's called savantism. They seem to have incredible abilities in particularly niche areas. There, there are people who can do mathematics at, to an amazingly high level, which would otherwise take a computer to be able to do this. And no one knows how they're doing that. Um, there, there's some suggestion that autism might be becoming more common but many, many people think that it's actually that the um, problem is being diagnosed more often because people seek help, they've heard about it, and so they tend to present to uh, medical services who then uh, do some tests and can figure out whether someone's got autism or not. Um, it's also had a lot of press and publicity because of the um, proposed link between MMR vaccination and autism, which has actually been proven to be a load of rubbish. There's no evidence linking MMR and autism at all. Um, a very large study which has been done in a number of countries, including Japan now, shows that when they compared people who hadn't had the MMR with people who had had the MMR, there were more cases of autism in the group of people who hadn't had MMR than there were amongst the people who had. And this was over 30,000 people were studied. So there's, there's very robust evidence showing no association between autism and MMR now. Um, but as far as that goes, that's pretty much it. We just know it's some kind of neuro neurodevelopmental disorder and it tends to have a genetic basis and it's something to do with the, the way the brain processes certain types of information. What age does it normally come apparent, Chris? Well, very early. And people by the age of a couple of years begin to notice that children may start to relate to people in a way which is different than, say, their siblings. And this might dis mean that they're displaying slightly abnormal behaviour, that they might be um, finding it difficult to relate to other people and show normal emotions. And, and this means that um, parents usually pick, on this, pick up on this very, very early, especially if they've had another child. And they think, well, th th the development doesn't seem to be happening at the same rate here. Mm. All right. Well, thank you very much for that one. Now, um, we have uh, Nick who sent an email in and he says, I've been to several rock concerts over the years. Why does loud music sometimes, sometimes, he says, encourage aggressive behaviour? Hmm. I wonder if it's the music or whether it's the drugs and the alcohol that go with it. Could be either. Um, I mean, it might be that the kind of people who go to heavy metal concerts could be cruising for a bruising anyway. They could be just out to have to make trouble. Um, certain rock groups uh, are, are a bit known for their reputation to attract hooligans. Um, it's interesting because I went to uh, see The Who play about uh, eight years ago and most of the people who were there were very nice, but there were quite a few ruffians as well. And, of course, The Who were pretty rough in their time. Um, and it might just be the, the sort of genre of musician that's, that's appearing and the kind of people they attract, but I would be more inclined to say that there's a number of aspects to it which go beyond just the music. And I think probably drinking plays a part. I think also um, taking other drugs might play a part, but also crowd behaviour. Um, sometimes when people get together in, in big crowds, then they begin to behave almost like an us-and-them situation, and psychologists have been studying this because of football hooliganism. And when you start getting people being told by stewards and things, you go over there, um, then they can take that as sort of a bit personal. And then all of the, the crowd kind of think, well, we're all being treated badly like this, and so it creates this sort of us-and-them situation, and it starts a fight, and then someone else gets drawn into the fight because they happen to be walking past, and then their mate gets involved in the fight 
fight and the whole thing snowballs. So I think it's probably a combination of factors, but I would definitely consider not just the music, I would blame probably other substances as well. Chris, Bob in Essex has been on the phone and he says, when we get high tide readings, why do different places have different readings? For example, in South End, five metres and then Mersey, four metres. Surely it all comes from a mean sea level. I've wondered that as well, Bob. What do you reckon, Chris? Yeah, Bob's right. Uh, when, when water moves, it moves en masse. And the reason we have tides, of course, is because we have this giant satellite called the Moon, which is orbiting the Earth. It's getting three centimetres further away from the Earth every year, actually. It takes a month to, for the Moon to complete one revolution of the Earth. But the Earth is also spinning. So relative to a patch of the Earth's surface, the Moon is changing its position. And this is a, exerting a gravitational force on water, and it's pulling the water towards the Moon. So you get a tidal bulge. And as the Earth rotates, that tidal bulge travels across the surface of the Earth and it hits the shoreline and therefore you end up with a change in mean height of water. That's the tide going up and down. So why should different bits of, of coastline have a different tidal movement, in other words, a different tidal height? And there's two factors, really. One of them is, well, what's the underlying height of the ground at that point? So is the ground higher or lower at one point nearer or further away? And the second point is um, that certain geographical features will affect how the water behaves. So if you have a big estuary where there's a lot of water coming down the river into that estuary because the tide put lots of water up the river earlier on in the day and there's also water flowing down the river so the combined effect means there's a lot of water exiting at the same time the water is being funneled from a large area into a fairly narrow estuary this happens along the Essex coast for example in places like the Blackwater so you get a very big tidal height at places like Malden and as a result of all this water coming funneling up into a fairly narrow waterway plus you've got the water trying to get out, you tend to find you will get a very high tide and a very low tide when the tide goes in and out. So it's down to, down to geography, um, largely. That's the reason. Thank you very much, Dr Chris. Our next question comes from Jake. He says he had a road traffic accident 16 weeks ago, broke his thigh, arm, wrist and kneecap. Oh, Jake, you poor thing. Please can you explain, Dr Chris, compartment syndrome, as I had four operations in nine days, including femoral nail and metal sleeve covering radius at Adderbrook's Hospital. Great staff, good to be back out there. A14, Jake. Jake, you're a brave man. Oh, explain, Chris. Well, Jake, I'm glad you're OK. Mm. Um, the, the reason that uh, you get compartment syndrome is because if you look at the way the body is put together, there are different compartments to, say, a leg. So if you look at the leg in cross-section, what you see is a bone in one place and then it's surrounded by tissue. But if you look within the leg, you'll see that it's divided up by these tissue planes. So there are fibrous layers of connective tissue that surround different bunches of muscles, for example. So you might have one group of muscles which um, makes your leg move in one direction and they're surrounded by a strong bag of fibrous tissue. And then on the back of the leg, you have muscles that move the leg in the other direction and they're surrounded by a strong, stiff bag of fibrous tissue. The idea being, of course, that this keeps the, uh, all the structures in the leg that are related to each other in one place and it gives them support. The problem is, if you uh, accidentally damage a part of the leg and you get bleeding, so for instance, if you do what Jake did, which is he fractured his, when he says thigh, I, I presume he means his femur, one of the biggest bones in the body, the femur itself has an incredibly good blood supply and running right next to it is also part of the femoral, one of the branches of the femoral artery. 
the deep femoral artery runs down there. So if you damage the bone, a sliver or a splinter or a sharp surface of the bone can lacerate the artery, and this means blood can begin to pump out internally inside the leg. But because the compartment the artery is contained in is surrounded by a strong, stiff bag of fibrous tissue, this means that the pressure inside this compartment goes up and up and up to blood pressure because the blood is squirting into it and it can't expand. So it's a bit like trying to blow up a balloon which is in a box and the box is stopping the balloon getting any bigger. So the pressure inside the balloon goes up and up and up. Now why this is a problem is that it applies significant pressure to all of the structures in that compartment. So muscles get squeezed, nerves get squeezed and blood vessels get squeezed. And this is a major problem because this means that not only is it bad to squash things like that, but also you stop any more blood flowing through because the pressure is now so high that it prevents blood entering because what makes blood flow is a pressure difference. Blood flows from a high pressure to a lower pressure. And if you have a, a blob of very high pressure in the way, the blood just won't flow. So as a result, the tissue in the compartment that's affected gets its blood supply cut off and it begins to die. And this is a medical emergency. So doctors are looking out for this and when they see it happening, what they do is go in and they do a, a, a fasciotomy in other words they cut through this thick fibrous tissue and this allows everything to spread out and this lets the pressure off and then the blood can flow again the pressure is released from things like nervous tissue and other tissues stopping them getting damaged and everything can then heal up so it, it's a major reason why um, if you break a bone for instance you break your wrist when you first do it, you'll notice that they often put on a cast, which is just a back slab. It goes across the back of the hand and down the back of the wrist, and the front is left relatively free. And then you have to go back a day or so later to have it replaced with a full cast. And people think, what a waste of time. Why did they do that? Why didn't they just put a full cast on to start with? And that's because if you encase someone's hand in a full cast and then it swells up, then you'll get the equivalent of a compartment syndrome because you're squeezing all the tissue and stopping the blood getting in and out properly. Whereas if they put the backslab on to start with, if there's any swelling, when you come back, it will then mean that when the cast goes on, it won't go on too tight. And also any swelling would have gone up and then gone down again by the time you come to put the proper cast on. So that's compartment syndrome. I'm pleased you told me that because they used to put casts on straight away, didn't they, when you wrote something uh, a while ago. Um, and then, of course, you know, it's, it's also different now, how medicine moves out. Right now, we have Les on the line. Good evening, Les. Good evening, sir. Sorry. What's your question for Dr Chris? I'm watching a programme on TV a few months ago. I understand we get a high tide off the English coast also off, we'll say, approximately the same time off the New Zealand coast, because we do get two tides a day. And I just wondered, you know, it doesn't seem logical, being gravity's meant to push, pull rather. Never understood how you could get two in one. Exactly, Chris. <laughs> so basically, Les, what you're saying is, why are there two tides a day? Yeah, yeah. It's an yeah. excellent question. It's an excellent question. Um, the reason we have tides at all is because of gravity. Yeah. The main source of gravity is the moon, there's a secondary source of gravity, and that's the sun. And the interaction between those two pulls the Earth and the things on it towards the sun and the moon. Now, things which are anchored on the surface don't move, but water, of course, isn't anchored. So water gets pulled towards the moon. This means that where the Earth is facing the moon, the water is pulled towards the moon more than elsewhere on Earth. Yeah. Are you with me so far? Yeah, yeah. Because gravity... The closer you are to something, the stronger the gravitational field. So the water closest to the moon gets pulled the most and you get a big bulge in the water on the surface of the Earth. That's the tidal bulge number one. Now, on the opposite side of the Earth, the water is much further away 
than the moon from the moon than elsewhere anywhere else on earth as a result the water there is pulled less towards the moon so relatively speaking there's a bit of a bulge there too that coincides with your new zealand so when we have a high tide it's because the moon is next door to us and it's pulling the water where britain is on the opposite side of the earth where new zealand is the moon is as far away as it possibly can be from that water so the water there is less attracted so it bulges a bit so that's why you have two tides a day because the earth is turning and as the earth turns right round the first bulge then goes to where new zealand was now is we go to where new zealand's bulge was so we get a second high tide but it's smaller so that's why you have two tides a day and they're slightly different amplitudes why doesn't it seem to affect it in the mediterranean which is the only sort of really warm place i've ever been as much the mediterranean is more of a sort of sealed off environment so you don't get very big t- um, tides there because it's it's rather like a, a coldy sack in the ocean there's not any mass movement of water because the water flowing in there can't really go anywhere so it doesn't build up much momentum so you don't get these big mass movements of water when you have a giant body of water like the atlantic or the pacific ocean as the earth turns and the moon is attracting the water towards it you get a very big massive movement of water which doesn't make a big difference in the middle of the open ocean but once you get to the shoreline of course that big mass movement of water moves up towards the shore and forms a high tide or a low tide that's it for this week our doctors will be back with me next week for more ask the naked scientist but don't forget you can also catch them on the naked scientist podcast which you can find on the naked scientist website www.nakedscientist.com the naked scientists are sponsored by the welcome trust the epsrc and uk fast for more information look us up online at nakedscientists.com <laughs> <laughs>